0: Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things Human Factors, Psychology, and Design.
1: Hey everyone, it's, uh, what is today? It's a great start <laughs> to the show. 300, 318. It's, it's 318 we just start today? over. Good. <laughs> nah. It's... Wow. March 18th, uh, 2021, uh, and this is Human Factors Cast. It's episode 198. Can you believe it? Uh, I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Blake Arnsdorf.
2: How are you, Nick? And oh, how man. is everybody else on the internet? If you're hanging out with us on Twitch or YouTube or Periscope, is that right? Yeah, we're, we're on a couple platforms. Uh are yeah. everywhere. Yeah, I guess we can jump into the programming
1: notes. We're everywhere. If, if you're hanging out with us tonight, it's been a good time. Um, we're we're on Twitch and Periscope and YouTube and soon to be LinkedIn too. We're we're slowly rolling it out. Um, yeah, uh, we we got a great news story tonight. We're going to be talking about smart cities again uh, from this article from the Next Web. Um, and uh, you know, I keep I keep mentioning this. We've been posting cryptic teases uh, across our social media about this. Uh, you know, April first date. It's not a joke. Uh, you know, that's that's our episode 200. Uh, and we got some some fun. Uh, little things in store for you all um both listeners watchers everybody really uh and, and our patrons actually the today just got a little sneak peek at something so that was that was a fun little reveal for them um but uh but aside from that you know we'd, we'd love to have you on one of our live platforms because it it uh definitely kind of keeps the spirit of the show going here uh but blake i gotta know what's going on with uh what, what's going on with your part of the world what's I see oops. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oops.
2: <laughs> yeah, so just a little peek behind the curtain, is like as Nick likes to say. I was going to say, as Blake likes to say. That's not a good thing. Um, so we we got everything ready this time for the show. Hit record, and I realized as we started, I don't have my banter put here. But luckily, oops. I have it in my head, so I left Nick a little fun oops here. Uh, so it. I, I don't know how to phrase this, so I'm just going to let it kind of ramble out as everybody who has been here before is used to. Uh this, so there are times, Nick, where I think I question my profession. Okay, like, how did I end up in this? Like, what am I really doing? How did uh, I get here? Yeah, how did this happen? We're we gonna get DC um, made. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. If we hum it too closely, right? Um, but so there's often like moments of clarity that I I have when I find myself in that slump, that kind of just remind me of what it is I'm doing and maybe maybe some of my mission in life and all that kind of good stuff. I don't want to be too sappy about it. But those – I had like a, a couple of weeks of this, so just really kind of going through the motions, feeling like I don't really know where my career is heading, that kind of stuff. And I ha- for some people that do know, I do, on the side, do a little bit of user experience education style stuff with a company called Design Lab. So I do mentoring of their various courses. And one of my former research students – who I only worked with for like a month. She recently reached out, and I remember talking to this person. Very, very hyper intelligent, and it it was one of these times that's happened to me a lot recently, where I meet somebody, and it's like you should be doing yeah you should be doing this human factor style research work, or you should be a a user experience designer or whatever it may be, and they they're finding it later in life, and it was one of these times where I personally did not know without my background in human factors how I would kick in the door of user experience research jobs or human factors jobs. And so one thing I had suggested was to either look into short courses that are focused on the research side of user experience or human factors stuff. And long story short, months later, like maybe a year later now, she's reached out to me and she just got into a really prestigious human factors program. And it was one of those times where it's like, nobody owed me any thanks for it, but it was really cool to see how the influence of just a short period of time working with someone kind of sent them on a different helped send them on a different trajectory. Um, and uh, another instance happened to me lat- last night as well. I've been working with a software developer who's also transitioning into user experience design and we got to talking and he was like, hey man, I know I know that you on the twitch streams that you do for your podcast, you have talked about, like, doing development. What does that look like, like, doing the front side of development? So this is somebody that's focused on the back end and now wants to transition into design and ultimately taking his code skills to the front end. So it was just fun to see in retrospect how, although sometimes I really don't feel like either, either I know what I'm doing or if I am sure that I'm on the right kind of career path, it's good to have those kind of, like, check-ins to remind you, like, why you're doing what you're doing, and kind of why you're proceeding down a path? Because my kind of like battle with figuring out my career has ultimately gained me a lot of skills that I love sharing with other people to kind of help them do what they want with their career. Uh, so it's been a it's been a good week. Is probably what I was all, all that I was trying to say there. But nonetheless, how's everything going for you, Nick? Man, I, I'm glad you had a good week, and I'm glad you get that that
1: positive reinforcement about uh, your career and. <laughs> you know kind of making sure that it's worth it right I've definitely had those those uh those uh what what are those like invasive thoughts well anyway um I I get it so thank you for sharing that um sure I got I had a good week too uh but it didn't start out that way so um Blake do you do you have your COVID vaccine yet I do not are you eligible or any of that stuff as far as I know I am not at the moment do you know anybody who's got your the vaccine
2: yeah, uh, Elise got hers because she's a, like a state educator. So she got her first round earlier last week, I guess. Was it was it easy
1: for her to sign up um, and find oh, an appointment?
2: So yes and no. So finding the appointment was kind of a by chance thing because although she was qualified to get it, actually like getting the appointment was hard, but the process when she had it was really easy. So she had kind of both experiences. That
1: was my experience as well. So I got the letter over the weekend that, you know, hey, uh, you'll know, be you you'll be eligible on the 15th. Um, and I was like, great. This is great. Uh, and so I woke up the morning of the 15th and looked for an appointment. No dice. Uh, you know, been yeah. checking throughout the week. No dice. And I just got to say, man, from like a user experience, human factors perspective, this is a mess. It's yeah. a mess, man. Because there's like... Here in San Diego County, there's like the California website, then there's the San Diego website, and then there's also the websites that you know you get through your healthcare provider. Um, yeah. and so it's like, it's this, this, com- it's like, which website do you use? How do you schedule an appointment? There's so much stuff going on to where I was getting very frustrated to the point where I was like. I'll just wait I'll just wait I'll just yeah. wait like a couple weeks before I get it because it's just it's so frustrating and I couldn't get it to like I couldn't find the information that I wanted to like even I just wanted to schedule it out like you know three weeks from now or whatever and it, it wouldn't even let me do that so it's like uh, it, it was frustrating from that perspective and and so on a whim today I like you know just went to my healthcare care provider uh, it was like it had to have been like what 10 a.m. or something. I went to it, I was like, okay, you know, I tried this earlier this morning, maybe something opened up. It did. Uh, and it was for 1230, and it was like 9, 10 tw- at the time. So like- Oh, wow.
2: So you like booked it for, t- got an appointment today? Yeah. So- Oh my goodness. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was crazy, right? <laughs> tried to schedule something three weeks out and get something uh, yeah, for there today, wham. Yeah, you, you got
1: it right there um so, so yeah i mean so i had good. the same experience as elise did right so it was it was very yeah. much like and i ended up getting it through my healthcare provider which you know for anyone who doesn't have healthcare or something here in the states that's a, a, a good chunk of people yeah, um it's a whole it's, thing it's, it's it's completely crazy to think about that right so like uh to to use some of those other systems that are really difficult to use i like i was getting very frustrated um yeah and uh, that's tough yeah because i was like I, anyway um so so yeah I, I signed up and once i signed up everything was fine you walk in they got a process down you walk in uh you go in line, you wait for the person in front of you to get theirs and then you go in answer a couple questions you get the shot you leave the room they watch you for 15 minutes to make sure you don't pass out yeah. on the floor and while they do that they're like hey just open up your app and schedule your next appointment and I had no problems doing that because they already have you in the system as saying oh, you got your first got appointment done. Um, and so, you know, I got my next appointment scheduled already and it's good to go. And, um, you know, it's it's just crazy to think about the logistics of this thing. We had Frank on a couple of weeks ago uh, and we were talking about the logistics of covid vaccine distribution. Um if anyone wants to go listen to that, I think it was episode one hundred ninety six. I want to say, uh, or uh, one ninety. Oh no, it was way long ago. Was <laughs> It was, was one hundred ninety. Uh, so if you want to go back and listen to that discussion with Frank, uh, that was yeah. that many episodes ago. Yeah, shoot, I thought that was last week. Goodness, I know. all right, where does time go? Um, yeah, it was. It was a. Uh, it was. It was a process, man, and it just frustrated me so much because, like, if you think about, um just the way resources are allocated in a situation like this, if this is not affirmation that there's a role for human factors in basically every walk of life, here it is. Because we're in the midst of a global pandemic, and there's logistics that need to be figured out, and there are people that want to use their skills to help figure this process out. Um, You know, and, like, I was thinking about this, too. There's, like, a couple different websites that you can use that um kind of consolidate information but none of them have all the information and it's very localized and they're and they even filter the information based on your location like i didn't mind driving an hour and i i actually did i drove up to you know north county which during traffic is an hour for us <laughs> and so yeah i drove up there and i was like I, i'm i'm okay with doing that just because i you know i uh, thankfully i have a a workplace that allows me to kinda on the fly say, Hey, I gotta <laughs> I just gotta signed up for the COVID vaccine, I've gotta go. Uh I'll be back. Um
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome.
1: Just the whole process is crazy, man. Like I just it makes me mad now that, you know, other people have to deal with this shit because it's just so frustrating.
2: Yeah. It was so I guess frustrating. The, the only saving grace there is like the the fact that once you're in the system that the follow up appointment is super Easy to schedule because you scheduled it on the spot, right? Yeah, I scheduled it literally in the waiting room as I was waiting to pass out on the floor.
1: Um, But I didn't. Uh, Vaccine is totally safe. If anyone's on the fence, please take it. Um, I can't imagine anyone who listens to this show (laughs) on the fence. But uh, yeah, I I don't know, man. The the whole process was just way more frustrating than it needed to be.
2: Um, yeah, and it's it's like that from anybody I've heard that's kind of gone through it at the moment. And the funny part, well, it's not funny, but it's ironic to me that the same situation has happened across f- four different people that I've talked to where they they get notifications some way or another, that they can get the vaccine, they try to schedule it at a reasonable time frame, like trying to be courteous, and they can't do it, and they on a whim go look for it. Okay. Let's go do it now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it just works out that way. I don't understand how that can be – how that even really is happening. But, uh, yeah, it, it is a logistical nice nightmare from the distribution side, from the, you know, actually getting it to people side. And, like, it's uh, – I don't know. There's a lot of – hopefully a lot of lessons learned from the whole thing, but you never really know. But definitely a, a giant role for human factors people, systems engineering people, lots of just – interesting problems
1: yeah it kind of brings me back to it you remember our conversation with uh with um about about the post-covid 19 response just about like how how you know supermarkets and everything have to adapt to the new processes
2: and procedures remember that conversation uh and they did it like they pivoted they, they did
1: uh, and it's like, well, why can't we? We had all this time. We had all this time before the vaccine was ready. How come the yeah. systems weren't ready? Why? Yeah, we can develop you know. a vaccine in this amount of time, but we can't figure out the logistics. What? The, yeah. What the hell? It's like,
2: yeah. I'm <laughs> frustrated. It's, so it, it's so wild because I mean, there. I don't know. There's plenty of logistics people that had to have already been hired to distribute this stuff, even if it's coming from you know separate providers or whatever. So the the fact that that wasn't really put into play until like okay, let's go ahead and get this thing out and see how it goes. It'll be fine. But yeah. I I think there I think there's a lot of I'm not trying to like save save any graces here for this stuff, but I think there's a lot of just infrastructural problems that already are pre-existing that just make it even worse. Cuz the fact yeah. that like for the smallest part of this, that you had to go visit basically three different websites and kind of figure it out on your own, that's kind of nonsense. You shouldn't yeah. have to do all that. Well, um I was understating it
1: when I said three websites. It was more like five or six or seven maybe even disparate yeah. websites that were like, oh, here's the here's the Vons and Albertsons' one and here's the Ralphs one and here's the Rite Aid one and here, you know, and none of them have availability and you know, it's just it's a mess. It's a mess. It's a mess. Yeah. It's it's crazy. But I'm <sighs> glad
2: that it, it's worked out and everything else from here should be pretty smooth, right? Yes. So well,
1: good. hopefully, you know, and they say that everyone who wants one should be able to get one by May. So, hopefully that's the case and hopefully not everyone has the same experience I had. I think we're kind of at the end of this or getting towards the end of it. So, hopefully, you know, it'll just be a fleeting memory in a couple weeks from now. All there right. You go. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into this next part of the show? <laughs> That's right, it's Human Factors News. This is the part all about Human Factors News. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors. This could be anything from medical, privacy, security, robotics. We got a little bit of everything in there this week
2: because, Blake, what are we talking about this week? This week, we are talking about smart cities. So tech is great, but people don't want to forget about it. So one of the biggest things, or one way to enable evidence-based decision-making by cities is to integrate physical and digital urban infrastructure and identify different usage patterns and emerging trends of how people are functioning in their city. However, as cities become increasingly digitized, and as more technologies are integrated and more data is gathered, the way this process is managed becomes increasingly important. And over the past five years, a consortium of city authorities that are part of the Sharing Cities program that includes businesses, academic partners, and other technology companies have tested a range of smart technologies in cities across Europe, integrating a range of e-mobility solutions, deep energy building retrofits, smart street lighting, and sustainable energy management systems all underpinned by urban data platforms." The adoptions of smart city infrastructure, of course, needs to be carefully managed and transparent because, after all, these these cities are now monitoring its populace and making decisions based off of emerging patterns. So, Nick, we talked about this... I don't want. I want to say it was at least a year ago, or the one of the first time it emerged, where we started seeing sketches for this that Google is putting together. And then I think even for us, like in the local populace of San Diego, we started seeing more articles about like the integration of technology for smart cities. And now we're kind of seeing in Europe a bigger test bed of what infrastructure should look like for this. So this is pretty intense and really cool, but. To back up a second, the biggest thing I think that this particular article is trying to get at is there's, of course, this pro and con of more more kind of technology being integrated into a city, more data that's collected on its population, and the use of that data being in meaningful ways and not in potentially nefarious ways.
1: Yeah, I think the big takeaway for me with this is that, you know, more and more cities are trying to establish these playbooks, at least this is part of this article, right? These playbooks of how to kind of make these smart cities um, work, but not just the technology aspect of it, the, but work for the people. Um, and that's one of the main draws, right? And and yes, we did talk about smart cities before. And we actually talked about, like, um, you remember the the story that we talked about a while ago about the the iconography about what data is being collected about you in these areas? That was a fun yeah. one, too. Uh, But but I think the important thing to think about or think through here is um, or at least the part that I'm taking away from this is, you know, we need to get further to the left with incorporating user needs into what a smart city could be. Um, You know, this is this is a lot of like the. uh, How early do you incorporate users? And I think they need to be incorporated from the very get go with something like this, because you have. You know, you have a million different technologies that could be implemented into a smart city and it's going to impact users in a variety of different ways. And one of the most intriguing parts of a smart city to me is all the different touch points of a workflow for a user. You, you know, a, a user of a smart city, if you, if you will. A, uh, what would you call it? A resident, right? But they are a user of a smart city. And so you have to consider their needs, right? From the moment they wake up, uh, to the time they go to sleep and everything in between there and when they're actually asleep too. You know, there could be other things going on. We, um, we had even talked about, uh, this is kind of like a perfect confluence of, of all the stories that we talked about too because we talked about like drones and how they have the, the levels of drones for like emergency services drones and delivery drones and all that stuff um, and kind of the process control of what that might look like from a perspective. right Who controls the smart cities is it automated or is it, you know, uh, uh, sort of logistical control center? Um, and then there's the technology within it. My brain is everywhere, but this encompasses a lot of the things that we've talked about with smart cities before.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I think. So this is like a really nerdy uh, analogy that I want to make. But I, I got really excited in like a, a couple of years ago. I got to work with a nonprofit focusing on giving them analytics and putting them like embedding Google analytics in their site and helping them understand at a better level, like how user interaction was happening across their website, what they could do to improve things. And this, especially in this kind of uh, European or I think really they, they focused in London in this London situation. It's basically like doing that on steroids in a way. So you're almost taking into account so much of what's going on in your city that you can help, plan what you're going to do in the future. So making things more electronic friendly, right? So providing e-bikes throughout the city or knowing if you need to put charging stations for more electric cars, like being able to help understand the city's populace projection of like how technology is going to move and really have that, that data driven decision-making on top of exactly what you were talking about, understanding end user needs at a really large scale can really have a lot of profound effect on how you plan a city's growth, or how you even plan like a newer, larger scale city. Um, and I, th- it's it's going to be interesting. And I think this is kind of funny that we went such down such a deep rabbit hole talking about logistics, because I think this is again like a system of systems problem that will take a lot of kind of time time and careful planning from a bunch of different people, including a lot of different human factors specialists to understand as you implement this technology, how do you make sure that it's interfacing with different residents, like you had mentioned in meaningful ways and not causing disruption. And what does that all look like as you play it out? So the, the like, I guess the flip coin to that is really also as a user, kind of like what you talked about with the icons, understanding what, what it means to be living in a smart city um, and not being kind of like ignorant to it in any way. So you understand data that's collected, how it's used, all that kind of different stuff. So we don't end up in, you know, situations down the line where something's used in a nefarious way, if you will.
1: Yeah. I mean, th- so, so this specific article that we pulled from the Next Web, um, they focus on, look, here are these playbooks from the EU. And they focus on the solution, but they don't talk about the user and so that's kind of what we're that's that's our springboard for talking about it here um like you said blake there's a couple different solutions that the eu came up with right there's you know the the e-bike sharing that you mentioned there's even like how to retrofit a building there's information on smart streets there but i think the point that this next web article is trying to make is that in these outlines for how to basically create or or solve a smart city the user is largely ignored, uh, and so that's our cue here as human factors professionals to jump in and speculate how they might, you know, interface with this. and And we've already talked about a lot of it, and we've we've even, like I said earlier, we even brought some of this stuff up on the show. Um, the The thing to me is like when you look at these playbooks that these that you know that just came out, right? It, it just It's one of those things where it gets me frustrated because it's like it's so easy to include just a what type of benefit does this have for the residents of a smart city? Um, And maybe they do. I'll be honest. I haven't dug deeply into any of these. There might be a section on them that actually has, uh, you know, and and that's because, you know, you have to request them specifically. You can't just download them. So it's one of those things that's kind of locked behind a paywall. um, So we haven't seen it, but. The, uh, the idea here is that there might be a section within those that actually say what the impact for the residents are, right? E-bike sharing. By making something available, um, you know, the, put, uh, residents will be able to get from point A to point B easier and more affordably than if these things were not available, right? That's something so simple that you can outline, um, and this is just a very cursory level benefit for the users um but yeah i think my my whole argument here is that we just got to incorporate them at the very beginning like think about them before you think about the smart city i mean technology is cool but why are we incorporating all this technology if not to make it easier for the people that live there
2: yeah and something that is it's not necessarily Well, i, I do think it is concerning because there's a there's a line in here about basically it's it's kind of. A lot of this data that's being collected to inform development of these types of playbooks that are meant to be, you know, options for infrastructure. Really, they're they're saying they're going to collect this data, create playbooks, and put it in front of policymakers. What we've known in the past, and I think a lot of people in our our human factors field have done a really good job in like inserting themselves in government policy issues and making sure that human factors voices are heard. And I think this is one of those instances where it would be super important to make sure that the right people are included in the conversation, um, and that somebody is looking out for the end user needs. Because the I I just want to be as honest as I can. The way this article reads, it seems like yeah, there's some cool things to be done, but it is it seems more focused on making the city run more efficiently than anything else. Now there is some obvious kind of like pluses to that, right? traffic might not be as much of a pain you may not really even have to you may have more um, kind of robust public transportation if everything's running smoothly they even talk about a lot of the the aspects of implementing technology that's going to really focus on air quality and the environment as a whole in the city so lots of kind of obvious benefits to users when you think about it that way but at the end of the day a lot of these things that are being called out are very specific to energy saving things that are going to help businesses thrive within their new ecosystem Uh, but you're right there's not a whole lot of what happens for the end user Uh, but and likely i would imagine all that still has to be figured out this is like such a high level infrastructure kind of concept they put together but you would hope that things like being able to basically it's it's kind of like a user service agreement uh, when you walk into a city or when you walk into an area of town yeah you've yeah exactly you're basically you've got to figure out how to communicate that stuff and i i think the biggest gripe that i would or the biggest thing i would be afraid of is if it's put in it's put to you in like a lease in terms that you don't necessarily understand and you got you need to go hire a lawyer to understand how data is going to be used so i think that's a major problem that people in our field will have to try and figure out how to tackle um it's just that communication piece like what what ends up being done with all this data that's collected while I'm here? And if I'm a business owner, what does that mean for me? How's how's that information used from the city perspective and how can it ultimately benefit me as a business owner or somebody that's living in a city?
1: Yeah, Blake, I, I want to back up because you were actually kind of getting really close to um, kind of the thing I was mentioning there just a second ago about like, yes, there's, there's all this benefit for the user, but... If you're not capturing it, if you're not recording it, if you're not um, codifying it, then you're losing some of the purpose for even having a smart city in the first place. Um, I feel like there needs to be, uh, I I feel like if you were to capture this information, document it in these playbooks, um, you could almost build a brochure for advertising these smart cities uh, out of those benefits to the residents, right? You could almost say, look, you got cleaner air. You got less traffic. You got, you know, uh, uh, more transportation options. You got better business uh whatever (laughs) you know like you could build out a brochure that attracts people to your city that says hey look there's less congestion because of x y and z there's you know like are you afraid of living in a city because of pollution well we got that because we got these you know greenhouse gas whatever whatever like it's just a matter of yeah capturing it what is the benefit for the end user and also you know it's that whole argument of using tech for the sake of using tech or uh is it using tech because it benefits the people. Like I man, this this whole thing is just a um, um it, when when it doesn't include the user, let me be clear, when it doesn't include the user or when there's no obvious benefit for people, uh that is when it's a mess. And the 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 easy solution, document it, explain it. What is the benefit for the user in these smart cities, right? Like Blake, if I were to tell you in this smart city, power will never go down because we have backups. Oh, Sorry,
2: sorry. Power will never go down. How does that benefit the user? Just, you know, don't ever have to worry about their electric car failing. Yeah. Or the- their lights going off in their business if they own one.
1: Right. Because the tech is, is such that, you know, it collects solar power and stores it in batteries. And so... You know, there's enough batteries to ensure that there's always a reserve to power the city for X amount of days without uh, external power sources like a like a power plant or something. Right. But outline those uh, benefits for the user. Right. Hey, you know, you'll never have to worry about X, Y or Z, not just the things that you'd power in your home, not just your TV, but your Internet service provider. They're never going to go down because, uh, you know, their power won't go out. Um internet outages could still be a thing if like a cable gets cut in the middle of the ocean or something you know like that's that you know but I, there That'll are happen, other obvious yeah. benefits you know like hey you never have to worry about your uh, automatic doors to your apartment building opening or not opening up because it's not you know powered by electricity i don't know there's there's a lot of, that's that's one very simple example um like then you could also say like, hey, we use one hundred percent green energy here. Well, what does that mean? Why why does why does that yeah. why is that important to me? As a right, it's the tech, but explain to me the benefits. Well, actually, there's less pollution for you in a smart city.
2: Yeah, and I think some of the like convenience factors would would be hard for people to even know about unless they're kind of explicit, like in some way or another. And one way that I think they they're trying to handle that, or at least it it seems like that's the goal of this social media platform and app they've designed called the digital social market kind of centered around providing people with better understanding of like what, what benefits that smart city has, what technology is available to you and what you can do in a smart city and kind of the impact to the environment. And also it seems like there's also a social component to it. So trying to get people to interact with each other, probably to incentivize each other to, you know, shop at local businesses and things like that to, ultimately allow the the city itself if you want to think of it that way to continue growing and collecting more information and data and stuff like that so i I think there may be more of that kind of stuff documented but it's not very you know explicit either in this article or like you were mentioning it could be in the paywall behind the playbook stuff it could be and and even if it's not it deserves to be in its own uh it, it
1: deserves to be in its own playbook the user benefit playbook right? For more information on the reason why users benefit, uh, or the, you know, the reason for this user benefit, go see the, the deep energy retrofits for buildings. <laughs> like, you know, that's, that's the source. Um, and so you can trace it back. It's that traceability, right? If I were to tell you, um, yeah, the, the digital social market, um, they there, that's, that's the one where it does kind of connect to the user. And so I'll give them a little bit there. And I think that's what you were mentioning too that digital social market, yeah. um, that app, but it's, it's kind of, um, to me, that's more encouraging the residents to engage in pro social behavior, like recycling or, um, you know, a, a, a community, um, uh, community garden on the top of your building or something like that, right? Though that that is what I think of when I think of that. I don't think of, hey, these are the benefits to the users uh, that are going to be a result of all these other improvements in
2: technology, right? Yeah, I think it's more of an onboarding tool, yeah. but I think I think you do have a good point, and it, it's interesting that you don't see as much explicit information about like end user benefit because you would imagine like take away the the importance of it for the human factor side of it i mean that's great marketing material for something like this is being explicit about what is good for people based off of these kind of technology implementations and what it what it can do for the end family the end business owner the end whatever like community in and of itself so hopefully we do see a little bit more information about this Uh, come out as these kind of get wider spread because i'm hoping that what this means is if we're seeing test beds at such a scale like this that it's going to become more than just like articles we're reading about in the u.s and hopefully start being implemented in larger scale ways in places like san francisco or austin or whatever it may be
1: yeah there uh to be fair there are some webinars available for these right you can't get the playbooks without requesting it um i'm not sure you know the, the webinars are freely available, so you know we might. Oh, cool. Want to go back and watch those, um, but uh, you know they they um, they have uh, more information there. I'm I'm looking at some of these case studies. They have Greenwich in there, so they they might have more information about what this app actually does. I'm trying to quickly scroll through it as we're talking here, but um, basically uh, it, it looks like you you kind of earn points for um, doing things like walking or cycling or charging electric vehicles or saving energy at home um, answering quizzes about your energy and and mobility and visit local shops to earn points so it sounds like this gamification
3: yeah. of
1: of being you know of green energy and uh, to me that is a um, I I wouldn't say it's antithetical to what smart sh- city should be, but it's not what I think of when I think of a smart city that serves its residents. Um,
2: yeah, it's that's definitely fair. Like it, it's it's oh God. It, it
1: kind of reminds me of like a social currency. Um, you know where where like you have some sort of social currency associated with your person because you have. Uh, installed um, solar panels on your house, or you uh, you've gone to certain shops that favor green energy, or something, and and yeah. you know I, I'm all for promoting green energy, but when you're giving some social status or or some points associated with your actions, I think that um, kind of count, counterintuitively uh, goes against what a smart city should do. Um, You know, like even schools can get points for being more energy efficient, um, at least in this example. So like to me, it seems kind of like a um, it, it seems more like a social tool to encourage pro social behavior, which is a totally different argument than what a smart city should do for its residents.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's obviously not very clear what they're intending it to do. I mean, the thing that I that I'm kinda seeing now, because I've gone to another article they've linked to it as well, in all of the graphics and a lot of the wording, like it's very much focused on the the changes they're gonna make in the city, not necessarily impact. Um, and although throughout all both articles and a lot of the graphics like citizen engagement is mentioned but the impact of it is not explicit so that does make me a little bit wary of what this actually means in implementation and because i'm even seeing like buzzwords that you would see for you know creating customer journeys with you know citizens and stuff like that well what's the outcome of all that stuff because um, it's definitely not clear in any of the suggested, you know, retrofitting or add add-ons to the city, uh, nor is it kind of clear what the overall impact has been of interacting with citizens and either even their receptivity to the idea of doing all of this. Yeah, looking okay. So looking at the digital
1: social market, right? They have like how to dis- how to deploy a digital social market, and I can tell you, there's like. Just a couple places where users are mentioned here, right? So the very first thing they have on there is impact mapping. Um, and this is talking about stakeholders, economic, environmental, and social impacts of a project. The social impacts are where a user might be. Uh, that actually seems more like um, a a uh, culture thing to me. But uh, from the way it's worded here, not necessarily usernames. But uh, what problem a city is trying to solve and why... Um, so that that the impact mapping is kind of user centered. There you have onboarding, right, which is um, very user focused, uh, and then maintenance, uh, which is user focused. But those three points are really uh, all I'm seeing there, where the user is considered, and those are in the early stages. Which, fine, but again, um, like users need to be mentioned throughout. Uh, you know, some of these uh, processes to make sure that their needs are captured at every step along the way, you know, Um, they do have, I will say um, in this webinar that I'm scrolling through, uh, this is the uh, sharing cities, smart city solutions, digital social market uh, webinar for anyone who wants to follow along. There is a slide with UI UX testing, user experience and user interface testing uh, at, at the, at the very top um of the app uh so it's it's very app focused this is kind of that same digital currency app that we were talking about yeah Uh, so so like they consider it but only for the app and not necessarily the impact of everything that's going on around them i i don't know which just
2: feels too bad to me because there's so much opportunity in this entire like if if you go back to the main words of what they're talking about in this article blurb is this is developing infrastructure and there's so much more you can do with citizens and user testing and user interviews and even kind of like pseudo experiment things, than focus on mobile app design. There's way more at play here, like with the amount of IOT they're trying to embed in a new city than to only focus on how do I kind of gamify the experience through an application. Uh, So it's, it's kind of, it is kind of frustrating at this point. Uh especially cuz we I'm definitely seeing like just UX buzzwords all over the place. Yeah. So it's it's just interesting.
1: It's almost as frustrating as scheduling a COVID vaccine. Um Almost. <laughs> almost. All right, man. I'm just about talked out on this topic. Do you have anything else you want to talk about before we we depart this smart city?
2: Let's let's just continue seeing smart city stuff roll out. That's all I want to see. It's just more and more kind of technology we're planning to use and what's the ultimate impact to everyone else. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. I think the smart, smart city stuff
1: is really cool. And I, I really want to see uh, a user focused smart city being built a case study from start to finish with the user in mind and not necessarily the technology. The technology is cool. And that's all. That's something that I was always told by the way, as, as a, uh, as an aspiring human factors professional, um, study the material and not the technology, right? I was very interested in virtual reality. Well, why? Is it because of it's novel and cool and new? Or is it because there are some really neat things that you can do in VR? And at first it was the technology, but I slowly became, I, I slowly came around to loving the subject matter uh, more than the technology. And I think that's something humbling that we all have to remember at times is, um, you know, make sure to focus on, on, the user needs and why you're studying the thing versus the technology. And I think that's a lesson that we can apply to smart cities for sure. All right. Well, I just want to thank our patrons this week for selecting the topic. Uh, Our patrons do choose the news. Um, And uh, thank you to our friends over at the next web for this uh, great article on why users should be included in this uh, smart city technology. Um, We're going to take a quick break um really quick though we are posting all these links to these original articles in our slack um and i'm going through all these articles on tuesdays uh, exclusively on twitch so if you want to check it out there uh we do have our office hours there so you can come and see what doesn't make the cut uh we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the human factors community right after this
0: human factors cast strives to bring you the best in human factors chatter every week we pack news interviews reviews and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on but we can't do it without you you see the human factors cast network is 100 percent listener supported all the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners that's why we're giving back to our supporters on patreon now more than ever pledges start at just one dollar per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is human factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash Cast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all,
1: and remember, it depends. All right, and we are back... Uh, I just want to say a huge thank you to our patrons. Like I said, they do choose the news, uh, and especially to our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you, keep the show running. uh, Gives us encouragement to keep going week to week. So thank you all so much for your continued support. Uh, Human Factors Minute continues to be a great way to enjoy Human Factors in a minute. Uh, it is a, it is a show, uh, for our patrons that we put on. Uh, it's a weekly show, uh, where we will dig into our textbooks and consolidate these complex, uh, really complex topics in just one minute of your time. So if you're looking for human factors on the go, it's a great way to stay in touch. And it's a, it's a wide variety of topics too, man. I'm talking like, you know, we got some human factors and ergonomic society, technical groups in there, um. You know, we got everything from forensics to a Chernobyl min- mini series. Wait, have we done forensics? Did I just spoil it for somebody? No, we just <gasps> you got them. No, no, we did that. We did that a while ago. Uh, we got like, you know, augmented cognition in there. Uh, HFE woman. Are you curious about those types of things? We have them in Human Factors Minute, uh, and and you can get that uh, on Patreon. So go check it out. I hate begging, but uh, donations like that do or continued support really does keep this show running there you know everything that we pay for is out of pocket uh so whatever you can give to support Uh, anyway let's let's go ahead and get into uh this next part of the show it came from it came from that's right it came from reddit this week uh this is part of the show show where we search all over the internet uh, where, you know, we pick out some topics that uh, might be of interest for us to sit here and ramble about. Uh, it's it's actually topics the community's talking about, and we just add our commentary to it, really, is what we're doing. Um, and uh, just change that up. No, yeah, no big deal. Yeah. You know. Uh, so. So uh, here we go, Blake. We got we got time for a couple of them. So we got. Yeah, we got some time um let's see here uh i'm gonna go ahead and just get started let's just read some it we, we have a ton in here so we can just go through some of these uh there's lots of really good ones so we'll start here with this one um tell me your struggles so we can make a change blake i'm just kidding uh this one's from uh <laughs> what he struggled with this one's Karamocha. 009 from the user experience subreddit. Hello, I've been in the industry for a while and just recently started my own business, but I haven't been in the job market for a while now, so I'm curious to hear from people here, junior or senior, what's something that you're struggling with in user experience or human factors, and what do you wish could happen? I'm compiling this information in an effort to blah, blah, blah. Uh, You know, Basically, um, what are your pain points? from a human factors or user experience professional perspective
2: yeah this is an interesting one one that i struggled with for most of my career um and i think it's only really starting to come together now believe it or not or in the past three months is process and that there is there's definitely no kind of one size fits all ux design or human factors process to use and you do have to implement changes depending on project needs and stuff like that there's a lot of variables right but there is there there are processes that work better than others and there are ways to try and match like an agile software development that will work versus just kind of trying to do everything you can and not following any kind of Scheduling or anything like that. So one thing I I guess that I've really struggled with is kind of figuring out what design and research prox- process works best for my teams and how can we start on kind of a baseline as on like all on the same page uh, in order to kind of tackle a problem. Because I, I am, I've become, I think in the past little while, really a strong believer that It's good to have a blueprint, but you'll have to shape it for what you need it for. But it would be great if it, if I, I don't know, if I felt like there was more readily available documentation or YouTube videos, whatever kind of medium that really focused on kind of process and how it's applied Um, from from like bigger companies or mid-tier companies, just things that have been successful that others can learn from. And I think there's a lot of still like hiding stuff behind the gate that happens, which I get it. There's some magic that you want to keep secret, but I think there's ultimately, if we're able to pr- produce design processes and research processes that are in the applied world, that all help us create better products in shorter timelines, that it's ultimately going to create a, ni- a better market and a better set of tools and stuff like that. The other one that's really UX and my career path specific is what, what am I going to do? Am I going to be a UX designer? Am I going to be a front-end developer? Am I going to be some hybrid between the two? Um, So I think that's been an interesting conversation I've had with a bunch of people recently that are find themselves in the same boat. Does it make sense for you to be in the UX field if basically what you're doing is you're a front-end engineer that understands design? And in my case, uh, UX research or human factors methods. So I think kind of figuring out what career path is an interesting one for myself anyway, but that's just me. Hopefully, uh, what Karamoca 09, you can, you hear this and we can figure it out together. But Nick, what are some of the things you struggle with either in your career path or whatever it is right now? That's a good question.
1: Um, the thing I struggle with is, um, it's a career path is one of them, right? I, I, Largely, my experience has been um, uh, oppor- opportunities of chance, and not necessarily, uh, you know, directed towards my interests. And that's fine. I've been interested in all the things that I, you know, that I've worked on. Otherwise, I wouldn't have taken the job. Um, but it's always been adjacent to the thing that I've always wanted to do. And so it's like, how do I connect that bit with what I'm doing now, so that way? I'm always working towards that in case there is that pivot um, so, you know, so that way I can kind of use what I'm learning now and apply it to that later. So that's one struggle. And another struggle is obviously communicating um, what you do and, and the intent behind your changes as to not uh, upset any feelings. Like that's that's a really difficult part of the job. And it's something that you have yeah. to be cognizant of. Because there are some people that are going to be really proud of mediocrity, uh, as we talked about in the pre-show, and um, you know, there's there's going to be uh, there's going to be those people, and it, it, you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Um, and so, like being able to phrase something in terms of the users and say the users need this because look at the data, uh, and connecting those two things together is something that's. It's a challenge sometimes because it's like in your head, you know, this is a better call to organize these things in this way, but you don't necessarily have any data to back it up. And so you have to like work ahead of yourself if you know that's a change that you're going to recommend to get some of the users to either suggest that or to, you know, get user data that's going to suggest that. So that way, uh, if you know it's going to be a tough sell, you can bring it to them and say, look, this is exactly what they're saying. Uh, it's not me. It's not me. It's them. They they need this. Look, it's right there. Yeah. So that's a that's another struggle. So that's kind of where I'm at with those. Uh, and I think that's a great question. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's a really good one. I'm glad you pulled that.
1: Yeah. I'm gonna pull. Uh, let's see here. I'm gonna actually go down here to um, first human factors job. Uh, so I'm gonna skip a couple of these. Blake, we'll, we might circle back if we have time. Um, this is from crafty example forty six eighty eight. Uh, from the human factors subreddit. This is, hello, guys. I'll be graduating with a bachelor's in industrial engineering where I took human factors-related coursework. Uh, I want to make the transition to human factors field. I don't have research experience, but I was responsible for the design of a workstation, as well as ergonomic evaluations and design of other components at my co-op. What kind of position do you think I could get now in the field, or would you recommend... uh, you know, or would you recommend human factors engineer, human factors researcher, UX? Would you recommend an internship? Should I get a master's degree? Uh, I know there are some master's program offer uh, out there that offers traineeships. Any advice? So, Blake, I want to approach this more of the um, this is this is definitely a junior question, and this is something that I think you and I are going to struggle with because I want to frame it more from the mindset of how do you transition to the field from bachelor's degree. Um, you know, because you and I both have masters, so take it away. Go.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna end it up. I'm gonna end my comment, probably not in the way you want me to. But I'm okay, anyway. that's fine. But Just regardless, this is it. This is interesting to me because this is a industrial engineering program, and sometimes. I have I have friends who do, it's master's degree programs, but their your human factors degree is coming out of an industrial engineering program, so they have like a, they are a true human factors engineer um, from industrial engineering. So it, with your coursework and stuff like that, I mean, geez, having human factors ergonomics and like product design, that's a lot of really heavy hitting stuff that kind of gives you a wide array of possibilities. So I mean. As a grad out of school, it's it really becomes, from my perspective, down how you how you're selling yourself and what you want to do with human factors, and I mean it looks like if you have like if you let's say you wanted to do physical workstation design or focus on like physical product design, you already have like an example. It seems like, um, of research work or, like, physical work that you've done to come up with a design that probably had to meet specific standards and things like that for your co-op. So I would really kind of play that up in your experience. Um, and in junior, in a lot of, like, junior stuff, I've seen people, like, kind of focus on where their skill sets lie, so courses taken, uh, things like that. Another interesting opportunity for you is getting involved in a local you know, human factors group, whether it's an HFES or whatever may be available to you. Cause that's another way to just build a network and kind of learn more from other people. Cause to flip, to flip things upside down a little bit, like I don't have a background in design. I certainly don't have a background in knowing how to code, but I do have a human factors back background, but I learned most of things, most of the things I did for learning how to design, learn how to code from networking opportunities that I got from either meetups or you know organizations whatever it may be. So that kind of networking aspect of it I think would be really important for you. The other thing and this is the last bit. I don't I don't I don't really know what the world holds for this stuff, but the the whole thing that is most attractive about if a master's program is an option for you is that potential to have an internship built into it. So that that's an invaluable experience. I mean, education aside and applied methods aside that you will likely learn, which you may already have experience in now, that ability to kind of have some built-in research experience plus internship plus networking opportunities, there's a lot that goes with that. But you can definitely still build that with what you have now because it seems like you have relevant knowledge, some experience and it really would sound like just building network from here.
1: Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. There's uh look, like, like I said, Blake and my perspective is from the master's side of things. Uh, I think there are some interesting pathways that you can go. One, why not try to apply to these jobs, especially if you feel like you have the experience. Uh, what, what do you have to lose? They say no. And you have experience interviewing for positions. They say, what's the best that can happen? They say yes, and you get a job offer. A couple things to note with that. Uh, A lot of the folks that I know in the human factors field have advanced degrees, so either a master's or a PhD, and that makes them a little bit more competitive. However, your bachelor's makes you a little bit uh, cheaper from a company perspective to hire. So there's trade-offs, right? So I can see a benefit for a company hiring you, out of out of um you know with a bachelor's degree. Um so so my advice just look look for them. If you can't find a job that works for you, maybe try an internship and then try a job after that if you can find one. Um you know, if not then maybe look into a more advanced degree, but I don't think like I'm not one of those people that says you have to get an advanced degree in order to to do human factors and in fact there's a lot of um you know, psych majors that go into like user experience and stuff. So it's like uh w- while they may not have the additional training that um you know a grad school might offer they might not have the specialized subject matter that a grad school can offer they might still have the foundation to work off basic research and uh you know work with participants to understand a user needs through cognitive psychology right that is all stuff that you cover in an undergrad and you know if you um I, I'm I know I'm gonna make a couple people mad here, but if you may if you read a couple books, like you know you can get most of the way there. Um, oh yeah, really what what comes down to is experience and you know it's always difficult finding a job out of school. It is. Uh, and so like what I'm gonna say is keep trying and hopefully you know it'll work out. Um, yeah, that's that's where I'll leave that one.
2: <laughs> nice very good
1: I got one more for you Blake you ready
2: let's go yeah
1: using user experience internships for human factors experience this is uh, from physic on uh, human factors subreddit so uh, I'm about to graduate with my bachelors in psychology so again we're i should have rolled this into the last one anyway and i'm really interested in going into human factors i have a pretty good gpa and lab experience but i think having experience slash an internship will really help give me the upper edge into getting into a nice program so this is not necessarily from the getting a job perspective but getting into a program perspective so we can look at it from that way um my problem is that there aren't really any human factors internships in my area And my uh, principal investigator for my lab said I should look at UX internships instead. I'm curious how well uh, experience from a user experience internship carries over to human factors on a grad school application. I find that a lot of companies want UX interns to have a lot of experience with design programs, but I've been doing a lot of statistical research in my undergrad. Any help would be appreciated. Blake.
2: Yeah, so look for... To the best of your ability, I mean, looking for UX internships can be well and fine, but I would imagine most UX internships are going to be looking for somebody with design chops in addition to knowing how to do the research side. If you're really focusing on the statistical analysis and kind of all of that in the undergrad, uh, look for UXR internships, and they, they will be out there. More specialized kind of job postings and stuff like that are more common now, so kind of put that in the back of your hat as well. Now, in terms of what, how's the carryover, I'm a big proponent of just it's how you're telling that story. I mean, if you want to apply to an HF grad program and use your basically work experience to help you get there, I think it's just crafting a story. Um, and if you already have good lab and research background and now you've gone out and gotten a gotten basically an applied internship and like you're taking what you learned – in your psychology degree and applying it to real world problems, that should make you a pretty good candidate from my perspective for grad school applications. Um, It'll be a lot of kind of trying to think about what do I really focus on in in my internship that I can really think about talking about in an HF grad program application. So what kind of, how did I understand user needs? What processes did I use? I use any kind of out of the box methods that you don't really see used a lot. Um, so I, I think that there's definitely, so from my perspective, and it's not a popular one all the time, but I think there's a massive overlap between the user experience world and the human factors world. And I, yeah, I would be very surprised if your experience in any kind of UXR, um, internship did not carry over very well for an HF program. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my two cents. Nick, what you got? Yeah, that I think, I think you're right. I think,
1: uh, like if you look at it Any experience is better than no experience, and so if you can find a UX design internship, that's probably fine. I think, Blake, you nailed it on the head. There's user researcher experience out there that probably more closely fits their skill set and would probably be a better fit for grad school. Uh, You know, I think overall um, you were absolutely nailed it on the head. You know, it's how you phrase things and how you tell that story. So. Uh, we're on the same page there. I don't really have much to add to that. I think you kind of knocked it out of the park. Thanks for stealing my thunder, Blake. Woo. <laughs> all right. With that, let's end the show. That's it for today. Everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the stories this week or story. Uh, you, you know, if you want, you can join us in discussion on our Slack. We do post all those news stories that I go through during office hours. You can check us out office hours, tv slash human factors, cast Blake's going to be hanging out this Sunday. Um, If you want to reach us directly, you can do that at HumanFactorsCast at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. One, you can leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice. Uh, You know, five stars is great. Uh, Two, you can let a colleague know about us. That's how we grow. And uh, there's a lot of new people for the show, so welcome if you're new. And three, you can always join us on Patreon. And we give back to our patrons because Patreon is our priority. And, of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web. Uh, and that link is in the description. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnstorff for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about what's going on with office hours?
2: You guys can come find me on Sunday from 8 to 9. No, it's a little bit early, PST, For you know, at twitch.tv slash human cast. And if you want to get in touch with me across social media, you can reach me at, at don't panic UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome.
1: You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome and streaming on Twitch office hours on Tuesday at 11 Pacific. Uh, thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time,
2: it depends. depends.